Our task this morning is significant. We cover no less than 19 chapters. And uh, in case you get lost or miss a reference, um, there are copies of the manuscript at the visitor desk on your way out. <clears throat> and you also are free to slip out during my prayer to get one if you need one immediately. They'll also be online, um, and they are there even now um, if you have an iPhone. Okay, so there you go. All right. Let's pray together. The pain of Job's lament, Father, is so significant and so real that it made his friends uncomfortable and it's hard for us to hear such a godly man curse the day of his birth. It helps us to see that he's like us with lots of pain and lots of questions. And that's why these 19 chapters are so important and particularly Job's Words, his conclusion and his struggle are so helpful for our own faith. So Lord, guard us from those moments when you put us into someone's life who's in suffering that we not give them shallow answers, glib little solutions, and silly little pithy statements that are technically true but are of little help. So we need balance today, Lord, to know how to use your word effectively and how to be able to suffer and cling to who you are and not why you do the things that you do. Thank you, Lord, for this book, for it creates humility in all of us, not the least of which is me, to try and cover 19 chapters in one message is daunting. So would you open our ears and our eyes and our hearts to what you want us to see, know, feel, and think. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. On February 27th, we will open our Think 09 conference with a special concert hosted uh, by Michael Card. Michael will help us to sing theologically as we think about the subject of the Trinity. A few weeks ago, Dale Shaw gave me a book by Michael Card, and one of the reasons that I love his song is because he's a theological songwriter, not just a songwriter. And in that particular book that he gave me, its title, by the way, is uh, a, A Sacred Sorrow Reaching Out to God in the Lost Language of Lament. Michael Card has some very interesting things to say about the subject of lament. Let me just have you read this. He writes, All of our journeys, yours and mine, began with lament, did they not? Before we uttered our first breathless cries, our mothers lamented in pain, giving birth to us, just as God said would be one of the consequences of Adam and Eve's first doubting. He writes, We are all ushered into a world in which the first sounds we heard were inevitably weeping. Weeping for pain and weeping for joy, because the two are often linked more closely than we can imagine. You realize that, don't you, that life begins with a cry, and it ends with a cry as well. Life from cradle to grave is a life filled with various seasons of weeping. And that is why our hearts love texts like in Revelation chapter 21 where it says this, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death. Neither shall there be mourning or crying or any more pain. And we look at that text and we say, Oh, I can't wait. But until then, until then we're left in a world with painful circumstances and and hard events confusing moments in life that we wonder, what in the world is going on? The aim for this series is to help us embrace the Lordship of Jesus Christ, His rule, His authority over our lives, even in hardship, so that when suffering comes, we will learn to cling not to why questions, like why is this happening, even though we may ask those questions, but we don't cling there. Our hope isn't in the answer to why, but rather our hope is in the answer to the who question. The premise of this entire seven-week series is that clinging to who God is is far more valuable than a relentless and frankly pointless search to try and figure out why hard things happen. Last week we looked at the opening narrative of Job 1 and 2 and we learned about pain-filled worship. And I suggested to you that pain-filled worship, climbing on the altar of pain and turning pain into an altar for worship, involved four basic things. The first is to have the right focus, to ask yourself, why am I here? What's my purpose in life? And 
The answer for the Bible is you're here to worship. And you can worship in pain. And it is to try and help you understand that you can weep and worship. That you can be sorrowful while being sanctified. Also, theology, your question should be this. What is my view of God? How do I understand Him? What is He like? What does the Bible tell me about Him? Third, uh, what are my affections? What do I really love? Suffering, when it strips us of the things of life, begs the question, so what do I really, really, really love? And finally, the issue of trust. It is this, when life becomes difficult, what do you rely upon? What becomes the essence of your trust and hope? And those were the the four building blocks, if you will, of a platform for worship. In pain, try and help you become weeping worshipers. You might think that if you get those four things right, that once you climb up on the altar of pain and turn it into worship, that then there's no more crying, there's no more sorrow. There's, there's no more weeping, but that would be very, very far from the reality in which we all live. Clinging to who instead of why doesn't relieve us from the reality of, of crying and of suffering. It still means that we deal with hard questions, painful emotions, and at times unanswerable questions. So that doesn't solve the emotions. In fact, I'm not sure that there is a solution to the emotions. Instead, what it means is that in the midst of our weeping, we learn to worship. And therefore, when we are in this environment of weeping and worshiping, we have to be careful that when we're giving people counsel or even thinking about our own plight, that we not embrace shallow answers. Little pithy statements to try and explain how we got here or what we're going to do next or or what it means for us to be in the midst of the crucible of suffering and to be very careful that we not engage in shallow answers that are unhelpful and at times even unkind. Today, we're going to see the way in which Job's friends were those kinds of counselors that gave him shallow answers. And although Job had climbed up to the altar of worship and was trying to transform his pain into worship, his friends were very rude, unhelpful, and unbiblical. So chapter 2 ends with an introduction of Job's three friends. Their names are Eliphaz from Teman, Bildad from Shua, and Zophar from Naaman. Apparently they had heard about Job's suffering because they make an appointment to go and to comfort their friend in his week-long period of mourning. Verses 11 to 13 tell us of their love and fidelity for Job. It tells us that they purposed together. They set an appointment together. They decided to go and, and, and minister to Job. Secondly, they, when they saw him experience deep, deep, deep grief at seeing his plight, And then next what they did is beautiful. They entered into his mourning by tearing their robes and sprinkling dust on their heads. And then they sat in silence. They sat in silence as they observed his intense suffering. And they did this for a week. Now as we're going to see this morning, um, Job's friends don't do so well when they start talking. (laughs) And we're going to show you some difficult things about them. Some things that aren't very flattering. But let's be clear from the beginning that their intentions when they came to Job were genuine and kind. In fact, what they did at the very beginning of their ministry to Job is very instructive. They did what all good counselors for those who are helping people who are grieving do. Here's what they did. They were present. They showed up. They joined him in his sorrow. And they were silent. That's what good people who understand grief, do to be helpful. They show up, they enter into the sorrow, and they keep their mouth shut. So before we give them too much of a hard time, and we will, (laughs) let us note that they sat in silence for seven days, and let us ask ourselves this question, would we be able to sit in silence for seven days? So these are good friends. They're terrible theologians, (laughs) but they're good friends. And they just wanted to help. Chapter 3, however, moves us into a conversation in which Job identifies to his friends the pain of his heart. And what Job's friends are unprepared for is the level of his emotion, his grief, and the difficult statements and hard questions that Job is asking. 
His lament, personally, creates some internal tension for them. And rather than thinking carefully about Job's pain and how they should answer, Job's friends enter into the dialogue with glib solutions, petty and harsh words, and even a condemning spirit. They turn from friends to foes, from advocates to adversaries, from those who were comforters now to a caustic spirit. And it's interesting to see how this develops. Verse 3, we see what Job says. Job is hurting, and it just comes out of his heart. Listen to what he says. Let the day perish on which I was born. Job wishes he'd never been born. He wishes he'd just never come into the world because of the pain that he's experiencing. And then verse 11, he, he says, Why did I not die at birth and come out of the womb and expire? Job sees death as a better choice than living like this. He says in uh, verse 13, Then I would have lain down and been quiet. I would have slept and then I would have been at rest. If you've ever suffered really, really deeply and had pain beyond what you thought was even possible, I think, honestly, you wish that you could just go to sleep and never wake up. True, the text that says in Lamentations 3, His mercies are new every morning. Yes. But there are times when you go to bed and think, God, if you'd just take me home right now, I'd be really glad. Job wonders out loud why God doesn't just put him out of his misery. Verse 20. It says, Why is light given to him who is in misery and life to the bitter in soul who long for death but it comes not? The summary comes in chapter 3 and verse 26, where he says, I am not at ease, nor am I quiet. I have no rest, but trouble comes. Do you know what he's doing here? He's engaging in what's called lament. And my question for you is this. Do you have a place in your mind and heart for godly lament? Do you have a place for an environment where life is hard and it's okay to say life is hard? Or for you, does it always have to be sunshine? A lament is an expression of how people feel with deep and honest fervor. It's being honest about what's happening on the inside of your soul, about your feelings. And the Bible is filled with lament. In fact, the book of Psalms, and the reason why we love the Psalms so much, is the psalmist says the things that we feel, but sometimes are afraid to put on paper. The psalms are filled with more than 60 individual and corporate laments. Most laments include six different pieces that are all a part of the progression of the psalm. For instance, an address, O oh Lord, in Psalm 3, a complaint, how many are my foes, in verse 1. Of chapter 3. A trust, a deliverance, assurance, and praise. If you were to look at various laments, you'd hear things like, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? You'll hear statements of deep pain and significant grief. And I take chapter 3 in Job to be the early stage of the lament. To be the first part where Job expresses his complaint. He's expressing his grief and his pain. Now later on in the book, like chapter 19, Job will begin to express faith and trust. He'll say things like, I know that my Redeemer lives. That's chapter 19, verse 25. Or he'll say things like, uh, he, he knows the way that I take, and when he has tried me, I will come out as gold. Chapter 23 and verse 10. But he's not there yet. He's in pain. And it's just coming out of his heart. And his friends make the mistake of confusing a cry of pain for a cry of rebellion. There's a difference. A cry of pain says, this hurts. This is hard. I don't know if I can do this. It causes me to have hard questions about your purposes, Lord. It's different than a cry of rebellion that says, why are you doing this to me? It says, I hate you. I will not. That's different. And the result of his friends not understanding this is they become worthless counselors. In chapter 13 and verse 5, Job says, Oh, that you would keep silent and it would be your wisdom. (laughs) Which means you were a lot smarter when you kept your mouth shut. Job's friends are not helpful when they begin to speak. 
Because what comes out of their mouth is a revelation of what is inside their head. I'd like to give you a, a phrase that I think captures them well. I'd like to call them the packagers of God. Meaning that what they did is they took their idea of what God was like and they created packages of Him. They, they had a little God box, a, a category that they thought He fit into. And the problem is that their package of God was insufficient, unhelpful, and in the end, unbiblical. Now to understand what they do here and how they err, let me help you and remind you that the key to this book is understanding that Job's friends are wrong, but they argue their case very well. And that Job is right, but he argues it poorly. So there's times that you read through the book, if you were to read all three cycles of these speeches, and think, wow, Job's friends are really saying things that are right, but no, they're wrong because they apply them poorly. And Job, you, you want to tell him, just cool it a little bit, Job. He's upset and angry and frustrated, and you'll hear that in some of the speeches, even this morning, and yet he argues his case very poorly. So he's right, but argues it poorly. They're wrong, but argue it well. And the point of what happens in these cycles of speeches is that his friends have a package of what God is like and Job's situation doesn't fit what they understand about God. The the speeches come in three cycles. The first two are in chapters 3 all the way to 21. That's what we look at today. And we find what their fundamental argument is. And then the third cycle of speeches, chapter 22 to 31, you will look at next week. Nate Irwin will lead us through that. I will be gone at a conference. And what you're going to see is that that third cycle, what changes is not the content of their argument, but the vitriol of what they say to one another. There's growing frustration. There's increasing defensiveness on Job's part. It gets worse and worse and worse. So, cycle one, Job's lament in chapter three is met with a strong resistance on the part of Eliphaz. Eliphaz and his friends take issue with Job's theology and they actually call him to repentance. The problem is that Job's grief and what has happened to him don't fit their nicely packaged view of what God is like. And so Eliphaz leads with a rebuke. Look at chapter 4 and verse 4. He has the audacity to suggest that Job needs to listen to his own advice. That he's being hypocritical. And that he's not patient. This is a guy who lost ten kids. He's got boils all over his body. Everything he has is gone. And Eliphaz says, you just need to be patient. I'd be throwing ashes at him. Here's what he says. Your words have upheld him who was stumbling. You have made firm the feeble knees, but now it has come to you and you are impatient. It touches you and you are dismayed. So Eliphaz accuses Job of of being impatient. And and also Eliphaz himself is rather judgmental. He, He leaves Job no room to be honestly sorrowful for what has happened. But the problem with Eliphaz is not just his insensitivity. No, it's a bigger problem. Eliphaz's real issue is one of what he thinks and his theology. Look at chapter 4 and verse 7. We see a misapplied theological principle, and it's this. Here's what he says. Remember who that was innocent ever perished, or where were the upright cut off? As I have seen those who plow iniquity and sow trouble reap the same. In other words, he's saying that suffering is the result of sin. Eliphaz's category is this, all suffering is the result of sin and all blessing is because of righteousness. Therefore, he believes that the solution to Job's problem is for him to confess his sin and God will restore all the stuff that he's taken away. Well, the problem is, is that's exactly what Satan said would happen. And if if Job did what Eliphaz suggested under the name of, of heeding his own counsel, he would have been guilty of saying to God, you're not worthy of worship because of who you are, rather for the stuff that you give me, therefore I'll manufacture a repentance for sins that I don't believe that I've committed so you can give me my stuff back. And therefore, Eliphaz says this to Job in chapter 5 and verse 8. He says, Oh... These guys make me mad, I'll tell you. He says, as for me, 
I would seek God and to God I would commit my cause. At that point, I'd be saying, as for you, come on, get some boils. Come here, pal. Right? Want some mucus on you? Come here. Have all your kids died? In effect, he says that he would submit himself to God. If I was in Job's shoes, Job, if I were you, I would submit myself to God. I'd close my mouth, Job, and I'd confess my sin and plead for deliverance. That's his counsel. Job's response is filled with pain and shock. His friends, so-called friends, were not helping him, and he believes that they are speaking out of fear. Note that. Look at chapter 6 and verse 21. Here's what Job says to them. He believes they're speaking out of fear, meaning that his circumstances are making them afraid, and so they're saying things that aren't accurate because they're nervous. Verse 21. Chapter 6, for you have now become nothing. You see my calamity and are afraid. What are they afraid of? Well, the problem is, is that Job's suffering is pressing in on their convenient packages of God. The way they see life is this, that all sin results in punishment and all blessing is because of righteousness. And therefore, Job has to have sinned because there's no explainable reason why this suffering would come upon him if he was innocent. Job counters, chapter 6 and verse 20, that he doesn't believe that his calamity is because of some sin in his life. Now Bildad jumps in. Job's words are too much for him. He is just plain angry. He says this in chapter 8 and verse 2. He just lets Job have it. He says, how long will you say these things and the mouth of, or the words of your mouth be a great wind? Does God pervert justice? Does the Almighty pervert the right? He, Bildad believes that Job is an intellectual inch away from saying that God is not just. And he's angry. He, he thinks that, that Job's innocence, if that was true, would thereby make God unjust. And he believes the solution would be for Job to repent. Chapter 8 and verse 5, he says this, If you will seek God and plead with the Almighty for mercy, if you are pure and upright, then surely He will rouse Himself for you and restore your rightful habitation. And therefore, Bildad's argument is so clear. It's this, God has not restored Job's wealth or his position. Therefore, Job must be unrighteous. His little package of God caused him to draw a conclusion that you as the reader know is just not plain right. Job's response in chapter 9 is threefold to Bildad. First, he says, I know that God is sovereign and righteous. I know that he's in control. Secondly, he says, I also know that I am innocent. And the third thing he says as a harbinger of what will come in the New Testament is, I wish that there was a mediator between me and God. Now, you read the New Testament, you know who that mediator is. It is the person named Jesus who mediated our sinfulness and God's righteousness. But Job doesn't have that available in terms of his understanding. Chapter 9 and verse 2, he says this, I I know that it is so, but how can a man be in the right before God? If If one wished to contend with him, one could not answer him once in a thousand times. He is wise in heart and mighty in strength, who has hardened himself against him and succeeded. In other words, God is lofty and transcendent. And I don't even have the right to come in and and ask him these questions, but somebody's got to ask these questions. Somebody has to intercede for me. Chapter 9, verse 15, he says, Though I am in the right, I cannot answer him. I must appeal for mercy to my accuser. Chapter 9, verse 32, For he is not a man as I am, that I might answer him, that we should come to trial together. There is no arbiter between us who might lay his hand on us both. I love that. Lay his hand on us both. That's what Jesus did. He laid his hand on God, the Father, laid his hand on us as sinful people. He absorbs the wrath of the justice of God for our sin. He lays his hand on us both. It's called reconciliation. And Job longs for it. Well, this causes Zophar's blood to boil. can't believe what he's hearing. And so he enters the debate with a harsh rebuke, and he suggests 
that Job deserves a lot worse. <laughs> These guys. Look at chapter 11 and verse 2. He's got boils. All of his kids have died. He's lost all of his wealth. He's on an ash heap. And, and Zophar says, you know, it could be a lot worse. But you deserve a lot worse. Verse 2, should a multitude of words go unanswered? Can a man full of talk be judged right? Should your babble silence men when you mock? Shall no one shame you? For you say, my doctrine is pure, I am clean in God's eyes. But oh, that God would speak and open his lips to you, that he would tell you the secrets of wisdom. For he is manifold in understanding. Know then what God exacts of you less. Know that God exacts of you less than your guilt deserves. You see what he did? Zophar thinks he's speaking for God. He's telling Job what God would say to him. Oh, that God would open his lips and then he would make known to you that what we're saying to you is right. That's what Zophar is saying. Understand, folks, that packaging God in convenient little packages can create an arrogance so you think you're speaking for God. Zophar's view is this, that God is so holy and transcendent, God is so majestic and Job is so flawed and sinful, that Job is suffering far less than what he really truly deserves. Well, Job has had enough. And in chapter 12 and 13, he tells him, and it's sort of like you go, yeah, Job, way to go. He says this in Job 12, verse 2, Job begins to get a little sarcastic. No doubt you are the people and wisdom will die with you. <laughs> Did you get that? Doesn't mean that. That's a barb. That's a, ooh, that hurts. And then he tells his friends, chapter 13, verse 2, I'm not inferior to you. Chapter 13, verse 4, he says, you're, you're worthless physicians. Chapter 13, verse 12, he says, your maxims are like the proverbs of ashes. In chapter 13, verse 5, he wishes they would just keep their mouths shut because that's when they are the wisest of all. So the problem here, friends, is that Job cannot reconcile what he knows to be true about God and what he knows to be true about himself. He knows that God is majestic and holy, and he also knows that God is in control, but he also knows he hasn't done anything that would warrant this kind of calamity. His friends have simplistic solutions, but they don't solve the problem. Job sees no point or purpose into what has happened, and he knows it's not because of some specific sin in his life, and so he's left with this tension. Job 13, 15, here's what he says. Though he slay me, I will hope in him, yet I will argue my ways to his faith. This is unbelievable faith. And thus, cycle one ends. Cycle 2 begins in chapter 15 and goes all the way to chapter 21. Let me just give you a little hint on this section. We're not going to really even look at it uh, very fully because basically the friends don't see anything new in the second cycle. The conversation just gets worse and worse and worse. More attacks, more pain, more harsh criticism. In fact, when um, I was a little kid at a camp, we used to have this song, and then the second verse we'd say something like this, same song, second verse, a little bit louder, a little bit worse. That's cycle two. It's the same song, second verse, a little bit louder, a little bit worse. That's what it is. You put that in your notes. That's the Rogopian study Bible right there. Same song, second verse, a little bit louder, a little bit worse. Because it does get louder and it does get worse. Chapter 15, 2. Listen to what Eliphaz says. Should a wise man answer with windy knowledge and fill his belly with the east wind? Should he argue in unprofitable talk or in words which he can, with which he can do no good? Yikes. Job says, 16, verse 2. I have heard many such things. Miserable comforters are you all. <laughs> They're going at it at this ash heap, right? So you ought to feel like, yeah, that sounds like my house. This feels good, you know? This is like, we're... Bildad, chapter 18, verse 2, accuses Job of treating them like cattle. Think we're cows, Job? He says, how long will you hunt for words? Why are we counted as cattle? Why are we stupid in your sight? Well, the, the answer is because your counsel is stupid. That's why. Job answers in chapter 19 and verse 2, 
Listen to the pain in this one. How long will you torment me and break me in pieces with words? And then hear the hope. 1925. For I know that my Redeemer lives and that at last He will stand upon the earth. Job knows that there is a Redeemer. He just doesn't know how it all works. And the difference between him and his friends is they got little packages of God. Little categories that they've set up that God is like this and the universe is like that. And Job's life doesn't fit their package and so it creates them problems and difficulties. And yet Job is full of faith. Zophar, chapter 20, suggests that Job needs to acknowledge that the way in which God operates is he punishes the wicked. 20 verse 5 says this, The exulting of the wicked is short, and the joy of the godless is but for a moment. He's arguing that, Job, people who are wicked, it doesn't pay off. Those who do bad things, God punishes. Chapter 20, verse 27. The heavens will reveal his iniquity. The earth will rise up against him. The possessions of his house will be carried away, dragged off in the day of God's wrath. This is the wicked man's portion for God, the heritage decreed for him by God. But Job says, no, that's not always what happens. Chapter 21, verse 7. He then starts asking them some questions. He says, well, if that's true, then why do the wicked live? And reach an old age and grow mighty in power. Their offspring are established in their presence and their descendants before their eyes. Their houses are safe from fear and no rod of God is upon them. Job says, your your packages of God don't fit the world that I see. And thus after 19 chapters, Job and his friends are at an exhausting stalemate. They believe that Job's misery is because of sin. Job believes he's done nothing that warrants this kind of calamity. And you as the reader know that Job is right. Remember? You have the plot above the plot. You know about the conversation between God and Satan about Job's righteousness. And his friends, however convincing they may be, are wrong. And Job, however frustrated and emotional he may be, is right. And the conclusion to the first two cycles ends in this awkward tension where Job rejects their package of God. Chapter 21, verse 34, it comes to its conclusion here. And it's just left in this awkward sense of commercial break. I mean, it just ends. It just stops. Job says, how then will you comfort me with empty nothings? There is nothing left of your answers but falsehoods. So, so what do we take from this exchange, this, this, this growing tension and, and these words that Job's friends give him? What, what, do we, what do we learn from this? Why is this in the Bible? And why 19 chapters of this conversation? Let me give you a couple things that I think are worth learning from regarding this particular cycle of speeches and some things that I want you to be aware of. Number one. I want you to beware of faith without lament. I want you to beware of faith without lament. In other words, there is this misconception that I run into every once in a while where people who are religious, who even claim the name of Christ, believe that strong faith equals no tears. Where if you express pain, that somehow you aren't still trusting Or that real spirituality is involved with bottling everything up and putting on a a little veneer of how you're really doing. See, the problem is, is that Christianity by definition creates a tension that no other religion in the world creates. It's the tension between a God who is sovereign and in control and a God that is absolutely good. Let me explain to you why this is a problem that you run into in the Bible. If God is evil, then evil things that come just simply make sense. Because you could say, well, evil has come because at the heart of our God is evil. 
That's why you would find, throughout the religions of the world, people trying to appease their God. They have to, to pray three times a day, take money and throw it into the Ganges River in India. They have to do all sorts of alms and, and try and atone for their sins because they are afraid of a God who is evil and ready to do evil things at a moment's notice. So in that case, evil just makes sense because the God in heaven is displeased and he's just doing whatever he wants out of the evilness of his own heart. But what do you do with a God who's good? A God who's loving and at his heart kind and just. A God who in his fiber of the essence of his character is full of the epitome of holiness and righteousness. On the other hand, you have a God who's in complete control. And some religions of the world suggest that God isn't in control. And therefore, when bad things happen, you just simply say, well, you see what happened is God just is out of control. He can't change this event. He can't stop it. It just happens. So God just kind of sets the universe in motion, and then everything just kind of rolls out. So God isn't in control. And religions of the world try and solve the problem of evil by saying, you see, evil comes because God can't stop it. Lament is uniquely Christian because of the fact that God is sovereign, in control, and absolutely good, and therefore the cry of the redeemed people who know Him through Christ is this, How long, O Lord, when will you make it stop? We know you're good, and we know you can stop it, so Lord, how long? It's the cry of the heart that knows that God can make it all stop. He's absolutely good, and the lament of a heart that says, Lord, I can't figure out why. A loving and sovereign creator creates the lament of how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever in Psalm 13. And also the loving and hard lament of Christ on the cross when he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There are some of you who think that to lament is unspiritual. Now, I'm not suggesting you go out and buy sackcloth, put ashes on your head and walk around church. What I am suggesting, though, is that there's some of you who either, A, have deep hurt and you've convinced yourself that not dealing with that hurt or that pain is somehow the most spiritual path to take. And I also believe that there's some of you here today who have just single-handedly decided that, no, I'm not going to be honest about the really deep struggles of what I've had to deal with in my past. The other thing I would tell you is when you're dealing with a friend who's in the midst of grief, be careful and resist the urge to take somebody's lament as if they're always going to feel that way. There are times that people say things that they feel, and as a part of their lament, they say them, and they know they're not fully true. And you as a wise and helpful friend, or as a parent, or as a husband or wife, would be very smart to set their grief in the context of what you know about the substance of their faith and not grab the manual on how you deal with apostate people because they said one thing that doesn't really fit. Sometimes a spouse or a friend will say something they feel but they know isn't true. Some of us would like, if we could, to go back into the Scriptures and say to Job or maybe even Jesus, Don't say that! But the reality is you can lament and still be a person of faith and trust. When I was in junior high, I remember going through a season when I was reading my Bible very consistently and praying. And my life as a teenager was getting harder and harder and harder. I was experiencing the the, the first edges of of suffering for the name of Christ. And I was like... those early days, I was like, you know, if this is what it requires, I'm not going to do this anymore. So I put my Bible away, and, and I made a conscious decision to say, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to read my Bible and pray. Because every time I do, things get difficult. And one day, my mom asked me, Mark, I've noticed that you haven't opened your Bible in a while, and you haven't, it seems like you haven't had some time with the Lord. And I said, that's right, I'm not going to anymore, because the more I read, the harder my life gets. I'm not reading the Bible anymore if my life is like this. And my mom wisely, instead of going, oh, oh, you know, oh, calling the pastor, we got an apostate in our house. Oh, 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 oh. She put her arm around me and said, oh, honey, you don't mean that. And that's the best counsel. Because I didn't. 
But the feelings of my heart were so raw and so real. And so, husbands, let me just tell you, there's some things that come out of your wife's heart in terms of a lament. You don't have to fix it. You don't even have to correct it. And it's not helpful to turn in Grudem's theology book to page 345 and have your wife read it, how inaccurate her theology is on that particular statement. (laughs) There will be time to correct it. But it might not be right then. Or there may be things going on in your husband's heart, women, that are so difficult and hard, he can't fully verbalize them, and it seems scary because it's so significant, but it's not coming out very well. Just realize that lament is often part of God's process. He might be in Job chapter 3, but he's not gotten to the end yet. And so there's a time for wise, cautious, and patience dealing with words that we don't intend that are more like the wind. Number two. Beware of fear that's couched in comfort. These, are, these might be strange applications for you, except that this is, what I think, this, is, this is why I think this stuff is here for us. Fear couched in comfort, what do I mean by that? I mean that grief is scary, especially if you're watching someone you love go through it. And there is a strong desire to make the grief stop for two reasons. One, because you want the person to stop hurting. But another reason is other people's grief can make us really uncomfortable. In fact, they can make us a bit afraid. Job's friends were fearful because his categories didn't fit their world. And what they did is they ended up assaulting a grieving person because they wanted him to stop being sad. So mark it down that it's possible... It's possible to try and provide comfort for somebody, not because someone's hurting and because we love them, but because their pain makes us really nervous or uncomfortable. It takes courage and faith and strength to say to somebody, I don't know why this is happening and I don't know even what to say. Sometimes pain makes us afraid. And so we say things that are unhelpful. This fall, at a soccer game, I was waiting for our son's soccer game to begin, and I saw a little boy who got hurt on the soccer field, and he looked like he was pretty seriously hurt. And his dad ran out to him, and his dad was clearly afraid. And he ran out to his son, who was crying, holding his leg, and it looked like his leg was pretty seriously injured, and his dad ran up to him, and he said this to him, Stop crying! Stop crying! Stop crying! Stop crying! And I want to go, What's this? He's yelling at me because like, okay, my leg, stop crying, stop crying. The dad was so afraid that he was yelling at his son to stop crying. Like he could heal his leg by yelling at him. And there are times when grief makes us very afraid and uncomfortable. And let me just encourage you to work through your own fear of grief. And don't try and comfort in order to make their pain stop. Instead, have the courage to say, I don't know what the answer is, and I'm afraid to, but I'm here. Third, beware of theology with no loose ends. For some of you, this is a little uncomfortable. I may get some emails on Monday. I'll forward them to Joe Bartimus. <laughs> his, his, his friend's advice sounds like good theology, but their application was untimely, insensitive, and unhelpful. Some answers, friends, can be technically true, but the way that you apply them makes them false. Some verses of Scripture you could throw out that, yeah, have significance, but not now. In preaching, we say it this way, you can teach your people orthodoxy and have them learn heresy. You see, their theology was so tight, their package of God was so well defined that it had no loose ends, no mystery, no questions. They had God figured out. They they figured out God, and the result was arrogant assumptions about what God was doing. Let me caution you. Theology with no loose ends is not the study of God. It is the worship of man. Let me say it again. Theology with no loose ends is not the study of God. 
It is the worship of man. Without mystery, there is no awe. And without tension, there is no humility. If you can contain God in 400 pages in a theological textbook, then you've got God in a box. There has to be tension. There has to be mystery. In order for you to get on your knees and say, I can't figure you out. And for God to say, that's why I'm God. You have to trust me. So be careful when you think you've got God figured out. Be careful when you think you know what th- why things are happening. And be careful of putting God into neat little packages that are technically true, but actually unhelpful. Be careful. Don't become a 21st century packager of God. And finally, and most importantly, beware of looking at suffering through any lens but Christ. Everything about this book points us to Christ. He, Jesus is the mediator longed for. He's the one that's going to lay his hand on both God and man. He is the one who will be the redeemer who lives. He is the one who will take the punishment for all of Job's sin. He is the one whose suffering becomes the greatest example of innocent suffering and injustice applied. And it is being informed into the image of Christ becoming like Him that is the ultimate goal of all suffering. And that is why, friend, if you're here today and you have a hard circumstances in your life and you've never seen it through the lens of Christ, your suffering will never make sense. There won't be a point because you'll miss the point of it all that the reason that God brings suffering into our lives is to point Him to Himself to help us understand the beauty of the cross so that you can know your ultimate need is not relief. Your ultimate need is righteousness and it only comes by Christ. And it may be the reason why you're here today is so that you can know with firm assurance in your heart that your sins are forgiven and every circumstance that's happened in your life has brought you to this moment so God can get your attention, so He can open up your ears and eyes and say to you, I have a purpose for your life, but it begins by acknowledging my Son as your Savior and Lord. The cross is the greatest example of injustice and suffering. And you won't be able to understand any suffering in this world unless you understand the beauty of what Jesus did at Calvary. And it also means that for those of us who have received Christ, who have made the decision to turn our hearts and lives over to Him and say to Him, we've made a mess of our lives, we need you to forgive us, we need to take your death and burial and resurrection as our own, we need you to reconcile us and God. For those who have made that decision, then everything in life as it relates to hardship has the purpose of making us like Jesus. Which is why the writer of Hebrews says, run the race that's set before you. You're not given a choice what your race is. God gets to choose. And then he says, looking to Jesus. You don't look to yourself. You don't look to your friends. You don't look to a counselor. At the end of the day, you look to Jesus. Why? Because he is the founder and perfecter of our faith. And he's the one who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising its shame. In other words, when you come to Jesus and say to him, I don't know if I can do this anymore. He's the one that says to you, I was there in the garden. I bore even that thought and that burden on my own flesh. Come, I'll give you mercy and grace to help you in your time of need. The enemy would love to use suffering and cause you to turn away from Christ. The enemy would love to have you take suffering and say, I will not follow a Savior who causes this much difficulty. But the only way that you'll ever understand how to live with suffering is by looking at it through the lens of Jesus and seeing Him and His example and His life as the model for how you are to live. Everything else is just shallow answers. Some of you are serving in a God in your mind who's evil and you're trying to appease Him. You can't appease Him. The only way that God, you can be near to God is to have your sins forgiven and that only comes through Christ. And hardship and suffering may be the very means by which today God calls you to faith in Him. Or it may be the means by which today your heart is renewed in its commitment to say, Oh, that's right. I just needed to hear that. I need to look to Jesus. I need to look to Jesus. Hear this. O risen Christ, shine forth and be a blazing warning by the sea. 
a signal where the sailors cling to life through reefs of suffering and need the blast of light and bell. Beware what here beneath may dwell. Beware of subtle, shrewd assaults. A half-truth can be wholly false. Beware of wisdom made in schools and proverbs in the mouth of fools. Beware of claims that rise too tall. The upright stand and wicked fall. Beware the thoughts that all is vain. In time, God's wisdom will be plain. That's the message of the 19 chapters of Job. Don't embrace shallow answers. In time, God's wisdom will be plain. O risen Christ, we thank you that you have become the greatest example of both suffering and endurance that we have in this lifetime. And Lord, I pray today that you would help some some believers today who have had this misconception that to lament means that you're not godly. Lord, I pray that in their lament they would be godly. Because true, there's things they could say that would be wrong and sinful, but there's many things that the psalmist says that just fit the condition of our heart. And I pray today that you administer healing grace to hurting people. And remind them, Jesus, that you became a man so you could say, I know. And, oh, Lord, I also pray for perhaps some who don't know you, and you are using suffering and hardship, using a marriage breakup, a foreclosure of a home. You're using the loss of a job, illness, to get their attention. Thank you that you can use anything. And I pray that today they would hear your voice turn from their sins, and this day come and receive Christ. Well, we're just in this attitude and moment of prayer as we close our service. At the end, there will be some counselors up here at the front. They'll have a College Park logo on their lapel. They're here to pray for you, minister help in any way. They're here just to serve you. We wouldn't want you leaving today without your soul helped and cared for and touched in some way. That's why we're here. I want to ignite a passion in you to follow Jesus in the race that he gives you to run. And so, Lord, now, guard us from shallow answers. Help us to drink deep from the fountain that's called Christ. And we ask this in his name, in Jesus' name. Amen.